Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 22nd, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Use the Force for Buckle Wrist Fractures in Children, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Tessa Davis. She is a pediatric emergency consultant at the Royal London Hospital. She is also a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University in London and co-founder of Don't forget the bubbles. Welcome back to the SGM, Tessa. Thanks, Ken. Pleasure to be here. Well, as I just mentioned, you are involved in creating the Don't Forget the Bubbles FOMED project, which is a fantastic FOMED site. However, you also have this amazing newsletter that you started. Can you explain what that project is about and what you hope to achieve with a newsletter? Well, it's a non-clinical newsletter, so it's to a bit of a broader audience. It's got sections in it about how to deliver better education, how to improve your writing, and how to do all of that using the tech that's available to you to be more efficient and deliver it more effectively. Well, I just signed up for your newsletter, and I would encourage everybody else to take a look at that. I will put a link in the show notes so people can have the opportunity to sign up to your new newsletter. But let's get on with the case. What did you bring today? Well, our case is Jack. Jack's nine years old and he has come to the ED with an arm injury. Earlier today, he was running at school and he fell over onto his outstretched arm. You examine his sore right arm and you see that it is neurovascularly intact. He's got no swelling or deformity, but he does have some bony tenderness at the distal radius. The x-ray shows that he has a buccal fracture of his right distal radius. Well, we covered buccal fractures way back on season number one on SGM number 19. Now, in that episode from 10 years ago, we made the distinction between a buccal fracture and a green stick fracture. Buccal fractures, also called torus fractures, are defined as a compression of the bony cortex on one side with the opposite cortex remaining intact. Now, in contrast, a green stick fracture The opposite cortex, it's not intact. And buckles of the distal radius are actually the most common fracture that we see in children, and they are a very common presentation to the ED. But despite being a common injury, we often manage them very differently to each other. So some clinicians will apply casts, some will apply a splint, some of us give orthopedic follow-up, some have no follow-up at all. Well, this practice variation, it's not new. There was a survey done almost 20 years ago in Canada, and it demonstrated the variability of managing buccal fractures by pediatric orthopedic surgeons and pediatric emergency physicians. Now, there was a randomized control trial published 12 years ago, and it reported that a soft bandage wrapping treatment for four weeks was not statistically different for discomfort, function, fracture displacement, compared to a group that had a below-elbow back slab for one week, and then that was followed up by a circumferential cast for three weeks, despite some little bit more pain in the first week in that soft bandage group. And yet, here we are 10 years later doing an SGM episode on whether it's okay to put a soft bandage on these pediatric patients with a distal radius buccal fracture. It is a truly wonderful example of how knowledge translation can take years or even decades for clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside due to leaks in our EM knowledge translation pipeline. 
So Tessa, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? The question is, what is the appropriate management of torus fractures in children? And the reference that you have for this? This is Perry et al. is mobilization of torus fractures of the wrist in children, which is the force trial, a randomized controlled equivalence trial in the UK, was published in The Lancet earlier this year. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population they had in this cohort? The population was children between four years and 15 years of age with with a distal radius torus fracture that was confirmed by x-ray. And they excluded some children, those that had other fractures, although you could have a concomitant ulnar fracture. That didn't lead to an exclusion. And if the injury was over 36 hours old, they didn't include you in the study. And if there was any cortical disruption seen on the x-ray, and any reason that meant the follow-up wouldn't be possible, such as a language barrier or lack of access to the internet or developmental delay. What was the intervention? The intervention was rigid immobilization. And what did they compare that to? The comparison was the offer of a simple crepe bandage. Oh, and a crepe bandage, we would refer to those as a tensor bandage, like a soft wrap. I didn't want listeners to think people were being offered crepes which would be nice, you know, I, you know, a crepe, but it, you know, you don't immobilize, you know, someone by giving them a nice crepe. Anyways, uh, so let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? Primary outcome was pain on day three, and that was measured using the Wong Baker faces pain rating scale. And participants also recorded their pain score on days one, day seven, and weeks three and six. So if you're not familiar with that Wong Baker faces scale, I'll put a graphic in the show notes, but it goes from zero to 10 and it's got all these face emojis and it has a nice smiley emoji, which means zero or no hurt all the way up to 10 out of 10 pain with a sad emoji that's crying and saying that hurts the worst. All right. For secondary outcomes, what did they have? For this, they measured a variety of other outcomes at the same time points. And they looked at functional recovery, quality of life assessment, how much analgesia was being used, school days absent, healthcare utilization, treatment satisfaction, and of course, they looked at some complications. All right, what kind of trial was this? So the first study was a multi-centered, randomized, non-blinded equivalence trial that was conducted at 23 emergency departments across the UK. So the authors concluded that, quote, this trial found equivalence in pain at three days in children with a torus fracture of the distal radius assigned to the offer of a bandage group or the rigid immobilization group with no between group differences in pain or function during the six week follow up. End of quote. All right, we've got 12 quality checklist questions for randomized trials. Ready to go, Tessa? I'm ready. Let's burn through these. Okay. Are these ED patients? Yes, these are ED patients. Did they adequately randomize these ED patients? Yes. Participants were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio. The randomization sequence was generated by the trial statistician. It was stratified by recruitment center and age. So that was four to seven years versus eight to 15 years. And they used variable block sizes of two, four, and six. However, there was some crossover between the groups. Did they conceal the randomization process? So how they actually randomized the patient, did they conceal that from everyone? Yes, they did. The researchers used web-based randomization software. And did they do an intention to treat analysis? 
Yes. And the study patients, were they recruited consecutively? In other words, did they try to minimize any selection bias? Yeah, they did. And when you look at the patients in both cohorts, uh, those randomized to that crepe or that soft bandage versus those with rigid immobilization, were they similar with regards to prognostic factors? Yes, they were similar. And all the participants, were they unaware of group allocation? In other words, was it a triple-blinded study? No, because of the nature of the treatment, it's not possible to triple-blind them. However, treating clinicians were not involved in any of the follow-up. All right. Did they treat both groups equally except for this intervention? Yes, they did. And how was the follow-up? Was it complete? It was. Do you think they considered all patient important outcomes? Yes, they did. And was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, it was. And the twelfth and final question, what about financial conflicts of interest? Were there any in this study? No, the trial was funded by the UK National Institute for Health and Care Research and it stated in the manuscript that the funder of the study had no role in the study design, data collection, data analysis, data interpretation or writing of the report. All right, that completes the checklist. Let's get into the results section. They screened over 1,500 patients between January 2019 and July 2020 for inclusion in the trial. The researchers randomized almost 1,000 children with 61% being boys and the mean age of 10 years. More than half of those who declined to participate in the forced trial said they preferred rigid immobilization, while only 1% indicated a preference for a soft bandage. And of those randomized to be offered a soft bandage, 94% of them said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. I'll take the, I'll take the soft bandage. But some participants in the group did not even have a soft bandage. Whereas in the other half of the participants, 95% of them in the rigid immobilization group were given a removable splint. The remaining 5% in that cohort group were treated either with a plaster cast, so like a back slab or a circumferential cast, or some form of soft cast. We did mention crossover in the quality checklist, but a total of 57 children, which was 11%, they actually changed from bandage to rigid immobilization, while only one patient changed in the other direction. All right, Tessa, give us the key result that we need to know. So a soft bandage was equivalent to rigid immobilization in children with a distal radius torus fracture. Yeah, and remember that primary outcome that they were looking for was pain on day three. So that's what you're referring to with that key result. So pain on day three measured using the Wong-Baker-Faces pain rating scale. What were the actual numbers? There was no statistically significant difference in pain scores between the bandage and the rigid immobilization group. And we'll put the exact numbers in the show notes. Yeah, and remember, they did dichotomize by age. So they had the 4- to 7-year-old group and the 8- to 15-year-old group. And the results were equivalent for the total population of the two subgroups with both an intention-to-treat analysis and a per-protocol analysis. How about the secondary outcomes? Well, there was no statistical difference between the two groups in terms of secondary outcomes either. Parents in the rigid immobilization group were more satisfied on day one. But by six weeks, there was no difference. Because the number of complications reported was very low, no formal statistical comparison were made. There was no cases where the deformities worsened. 
Yeah, and there was no difference in complication rate in either group. Both treatment options led to a similar number of missed school days, around one and a half days. Now, th there was a small difference in analgesia use. 83% of the bandage group had analgesia compared to 78 in the region of mobilization group. But again, that was just on the first day, though there was no statistical difference as you moved further on in the study. All right, those are the results. Let's talk nerdy. Okay, so parents seem to want something for coming to the ED. The families did not like having no treatment provided. And interestingly, the trial was originally set up to compare rigid immobilization with no treatment and discharge, but a family focus group, which was carried out by the researchers, suggested that the offer of no treatment at all was unacceptable. And that's why the study was changed to compare rigid immobilization with the offer of a soft bandage. Yeah, so my father-in-law is a pediatrician and he used to always say, you know, the parents, they want something for coming. And I guess that would sort of be a little bit like intervention bias on the uh, clinician side. Like you feel like you want to do something. Oh, okay, yeah, you broke your arm. Have a great day. You know, so offering them at least a soft bandage. I can see why that focus group came up and, they, and the researchers had to tweak their methodology a bit. The second nerdy point was about uh, equivalence trial. We don't see a lot of trials designed to check for equivalence. I think the most common design is one for superiority. And the more conservative way to analyze a superiority trial is with an intention to treat analysis. Now, in contrast, non-inferiority trials, which I think we're seeing more of, it's better to conduct a per-protocol analysis. And our friend Justin Morgenstern over at First 10 EM has tweeted his thoughts about non-inferiority trials, citing an article saying, non-inferiority trials are unethical. I wonder what Justin thinks about an equivalence trial. Uh, the FORCE trial did both types of analyses, though. They did both an intention to treat analysis and a per protocol analysis, and both demonstrated equivalence. The third thing is about variability in the diagnosis, because it, the diagnosis was confirmed on X-ray, but from certainly from my experience, not everyone diagnoses a torus fracture in the same way. It is subjective looking at the X-ray, whether you classify it as a torus fracture or whether you think there was a full-up breach in the cortex. So this may cause some variability about which patients were included. And I, and I see the torus fracture or the buccal fracture used interchangeably with green stick fracture. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's a little bump in the bone there. And I, I see both terms used. So it's a bit of a fuzzy sort of definition that we're basing this on. The fourth thing is, don't just do something, stand there. And this is an important philosophy in medicine that I learned from Dr. Jerry Hoffman. It was explained very well in an article called, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There, The Value and Art of Deliberate Clinical Inertia. Clinicians have a desire to usually do something, and this is called intervention bias. More care is not always better care. And the use of a soft bandage to treat a distal radius buccal fracture in children is an excellent example. Not putting on a rigid immobilization can be part of high-quality care. The clinician can empathize with the parents, provide symptom relief for the child, educate them about the natural history of this type of injury, 
and manage their expectations and perform some shared decision making. And the final thing that I think it's important to think about is where does this take us? Could it take us to a place where we actually don't need to image these patients at all because we know that really they don't really need any intervention? So could there be a time when we don't do x-rays or maybe we just put an ultrasound probe on them to confirm the buckle and use our clinical diagnosis and assessment? This would save on lots of radiation and extra time in the ED for these patients. Wow, you're really getting out over your skis on that one, I think. I can see parents come in, they're concerned that uh, their child has broken their arm. Uh, yeah, we're, we're not even going to get an x-ray. Yeah, so wow, you're 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 living on the edge. You're pushing the envelope there, Tessa. Well, we do have times where we don't X-ray for other things, don't we? I mean, sometimes we assess an injury and say, well, actually, it doesn't need an X-ray. So maybe this could be moving into that category in the future. Yeah, maybe the Ottawa group is listening, and maybe we could have the Ottawa distal radius fracture buckle Canadian rule or something like that. You heard it here first. Yeah, like they need to put out another one. But, you know, you're right. You know, when people bring their child in for a pulled elbow or a nursemaid elbow, we're not routinely x-raying those. So, yeah, maybe maybe that's where we're headed. Well, that's enough nerdiness. How about commenting on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions? Well, Ken, we agree with the author's conclusions. Yeah, we do. All right. Can you give us an SGEM bottom line? The bottom line is it is very reasonable to treat distal radius torus fractures in children with the offer of a soft bandage and immediate discharge from ED. Can you resolve that case of Jack? I can. Well, Jack gets offered a soft bandage and he's very happy to use it. He's discharged home with simple analgesia, so using ibuprofen or paracetamol, and we don't arrange any scheduled follow-up for him. Did you see how I put that English version of for acetaminophen, paracetamol, just for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. How are you going to take this new study that was, you know, like we've been known about this for years? How are you going to take it and apply it clinically? I think this is a great study because it really backs up with more evidence what we already know and what some of us are clinically doing already. We know that these torus fractures in children, they heal well. We do not need to use rigid immobilization on them. And really, we can treat them the same way as we treat wrist sprains. Yeah, there could be really a a denominator neglect because we have no idea how many children out there fell today, hurt their wrist, and were never imaged, and they still turn out okay. Very true. All right, so what are you going to tell um, the parents of Jack? I'm going to say that Jack's got a small bump in his bone and that is basically the same as a sprain. And so we manage it in the same way that we manage a sprain. So his parents can give him some analgesia over the next few days if he needs it and just encourage Jack to use his arm as he feels comfortable. And the pain will gradually improve over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that's a great way to reframe it. He's got a bump on his bone, right? You know, the parents hear the word fracture or broken. And it's like, what do you mean you're not putting a cast on? And it's like the adult who comes in and we've reframed the condition acute bronchitis because acute bronchitis, oh, I need my antibiotics, as opposed to you've got a chest cold, you've got a cold in your chest. So I like that how you put, yeah, you've got a small bump on your bone because that's that's basically what it looks like. You've got a small bump on your bone and we're going to treat it like a sprain and Jack's going to do just fine. 
All right, now it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Glenn Keating from Columbus, Ohio, who won the Keener Contest two years ago. Glenn knew the enzyme that we do not have to synthesize vitamin C. And did you see, Tessa, how I skipped over pronouncing that? Could you help me? What? How do I say that? <laughs> well, it's easy, Ken. I don't know what your issue is. Oh, it's definitely glonolactone oxidase. Thank you. Uh, one of my superpowers, besides being able to remember the lyrics to every 80s song and quote any 80s movie, is to be able to mispronounce just about anything. All right, well, what do you have for a Keener Contest question this week? The question this week is, what is the etymology of the word Taurus? Yeah, I like that one, yeah. So where'd the word Taurus come from? If you know the answer, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now, I do want to give a shout out to the other FOMED resource on this trial, on the FORCE trial. And that was from Don't Forget the Bubbles. And that's how I contacted you. I said, wait a minute, the FORCE trial is out? Excellent. Wait, Don't Forget the Bubbles has done a great blog post on it. Let's get Tessa on here and have her back on the SGEM. So thanks so much for coming back on the SGEM and helping cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. Thanks, Ken. It's been a blast. I hope that we can get together sometime in the near future and hang out on some beanbag chairs on the top of some conference center, solving the problems of life like we did back in Smack. I miss those times, those BC before COVID times. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, to close the show, can you give the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.